Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Allison Dundees-Rentel, and I'm a professor in the Department of Political Science and International Relations, and I also have appointments in anthropology, law, and public policy. Today, we're going to have a discussion of two extraordinary new books. One focuses on former President Barack Obama, and the other analyzes the relationship between President Obama and President Biden. These are works that examine their contributions, and the writers are very perceptive. And so the conversation that we're going to be having about these works will be broadcast on Zoom, Facebook, and YouTube. And it also will be featured in the next Bully Pulpit podcast of the Center for the Political Future. Let me introduce our two guests. Gabrielle De Benedetti is the national correspondent for the New York Magazine, and he formerly covered politics for Politico and Reuters. His fascinating book is entitled The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. And I believe he works from both New York and Austin. So he has a lot of frequent flyer miles, presumably. Our second speaker is Professor Patricia Turner. She is a professor of African-American studies and of world arts, culture and dance at the other university in town. She's a world-renowned folklorist. And uh, her new book is entitled Trash Talk. Anti-Obama Lore and Race in the 21st Century. It is a compelling interpretation of these disturbing narratives and a very thought-provoking work. Uh, she is an expert in many genres of folklore, urban legend, rumor, quilting, and she is a charismatic, brilliant scholar who has inspired many of us to do research in new areas. And I had a chance to hear her speak on some related material at the International Society of Contemporary Legend in Ottawa. And I know you're in for a treat today. So our moderator for this conversation is our own beloved Professor Bob Shrum. He is the Warshaw Professor and Director of the Center for the Political Future here at the University of Southern California in Dornside College. He is a wonderful colleague, gentleman, leader, and friend. Please join me in welcoming all of our speakers and our fearless leader. Allison, thank you for that generous introduction for each of us. And thank you for your kind words about me. You're a terrific colleague and a friend. I want to tell you all that I'm going to leave time for questions from the audience last 15 minutes or so of this hour. And I also want to tell you that these are both great books. The two books are obviously different, but I want to start with the same question for both of you and then alternate as I ask each of you specific questions about your books. And finally, as I said, leave time for the audience. So first to both of you, a lot of commentators thought and wrote that with the election of Barack Obama, America had crossed the Rubicon on race. It turned out the opposite was true. Why did that happen? Why did people so misestimate what was going to happen? And why did we see the avalanche of the kinds of things you write about? We'll start with Pat. Thank you for that nice introduction, Allison. And thanks to all the people who made this happen today. You know, if Twitter had existed as a thing when Barack Obama was elected, 
you would not have seen anything about a post-racial America. Um, I don't think that members of the African-American community and, and those familiar really with the cycles that have um, characterized the time really from the end of the Civil War to the present uh, um, would have anticipated a, just a climb upwards. Our history has been much more cyclical. So we get Reconstruction after the Civil War. Things are moving at a pace where we've got blacks in Congress. And then the wall gets hit six or seven years in, and uh, Jim Crow surfaces and undermines all of the progress that had been affected. We move into the 20th century, World War One. Oh, black soldiers, go fight in Europe for us. And when you come back, this Jim Crow stuff will magically disappear. And they were met at the bus stations and the uniforms were ripped off of them and they had to walk home in their underwear. Same message went out with the Second World War. The Civil Rights Movement was the next moment. Oh, so much progress has been made. And then we hit in the, the 1970s this virulent anti-affirmative action moment. So really, it's been very cyclical progress for African Americans. And I don't think a lot of folks familiar with that history really did greet the presidency of Barack Obama with that expectation. Gabe, how did Biden react to all of the stuff that was coming out of Obama? I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. That's perfect history that set the stage for where we were. To answer the initial question for a second, there is a tendency in this country to vastly overestimate or vastly overinterpret individual elections. It was obviously a hugely historic moment when Obama was elected, but the uh, environment in which he was elected, a very scared moment for the country. People tended to forget that almost immediately because they assumed that the very fact of his election was going to change things. But elections reflect where the country is. They don't in themselves tend to change things. Sometimes they obviously do. We can talk about more recent history. But, you know, you just look at that election, and there was a very famous moment where John McCain, who was Obama's opponent, was was greeted at a town hall by, by a voter who essentially said, you know, Obama is a secret Muslim terrorist. What are we going to do about him? And it was a, we remember that moment now because McCain stood up and said, he's a decent man, he's a Christian. No, he's not, you know, which is, of course, a question of misinformation and conspiracy theory about Obama. But that was the environment within which he was elected. It was not as if the next day after he was elected, it was a you know sunny day or across the country, and it was a new new era, as as a lot of the um, coverage might have it. But you know, to think about the role that Biden played in a lot of this at this time, it's important to remember the context, which is that it was never said so explicitly. But when he was chosen to be to be Obama's running mate, the, the public version of this was. He is an older man who has a lot of the experience that Obama doesn't have on Capitol Hill in foreign affairs, and that would help with governing, but it would also help voters be more comfortable with Obama. The unspoken part often was that Biden was an older white man and that there was a lot of insecurity in the country about electing uh, a black president for the first time. And even Obama's team and Obama himself certainly didn't know whether to believe a lot of polls that showed him winning. They weren't sure that voters would actually vote for the first African-American candidate of a major party. And there was a lot of fear that there was essentially hidden racism that the polls weren't reflecting, or at least fear. Um, so Biden was never explicitly said, it was never explicitly said, Biden, your job is to make sure that these races don't act on their racism. Um, that certainly wasn't the way that it was thought of, but it was make sure that people are calmed down, that things aren't going to change too much, which of course was a complicated thing for him to have to do. 
and a complicated uh, overall conversation, which was, again, why it wasn't often said out loud. During the course of their president, of their joint uh, administration, their relationship changed a lot. But Biden was always very, very protective of Obama. And so when conspiracy theories started to arise, and particularly birtherism and things like that, Biden got very defensive in private. He would make sure that Obama knew that he was stood behind him. But he also became one of the administration's primary defenders of Obama, publicly, essentially trying to debunk all this as much as possible, but understanding that to a lot of the public that had known him in one way or another for many decades, he could be a reassurance in saying none of this is true, but he was outraged by it, if not as surprised. So you've talked about uh, why Obama picked Biden, at least partially, and you've talked about how close they were. Did they get closer over time during that administration? Yes, and, and I didn't mention this, but they weren't close at all when Obama chose Biden. Um, the context is they had known each other in the Senate, um, but Obama had only been there for a few years, and Biden had been there for many, many years, and in fact thought that it was his turn to be president or that he should be taken much more seriously. The 2008 election is often forgotten now, but Biden ran into, and he was essentially an afterthought. He was, you know, crushed into dust in Iowa. He got 1% and had to drop out. And that was very painful for him. He wasn't necessarily so sure of Obama. He was obviously impressed with Obama's smarts, with his rhetorical abilities. He thought he was potentially a very powerful politician, but he thought it was crazy that someone who was so young and so inexperienced could be the next president. He was sort of offended by that idea. So it took him quite a long time, even though he was impressed again. Obama to really come on board. And Obama only chose him after, you know, a very extensive process in trying to determine who his vice president was going to be or who his running mate was going to be. And he used to joke with his with his aides, he would say, um, do we really have to pick someone? Because I'm pretty sure I'm gonna win. And you know, I don't need to join, you know, have a shared legacy with someone else. And obviously it was tongue in cheek, but there is something to that. You know, their relationship had been fairly rocky in the Senate. Obama wasn't impressed with Biden, who thought that he was essentially an emblem of the old way of doing things, you know, cutting too many deals, talking for too long, not being particularly visionary in his politics. The primary issue in 2008 was the war in Iraq, and Biden had, though he was had sort of a tortured role in, in the rollout of that war, you know, had essentially, had eventually voted for it. So to make a long story short, you know, Obama was choosing in the moment to be his, his vice president, and he had whittled it down to three final contenders. There was Joe Biden, uh, Tim Kaine, who's now senator from Virginia, but at the time was governor of Virginia, and then Obama thought about Evan Biden, who was a senator and former governor, essentially a centrist, moderate, good-looking guy, as Obama kept saying. But they forgot about him fairly quickly because while he was a serious contender, it didn't really make a ton of political sense. But Obama thought very seriously about Tim Kaine, who was seen at the time as having a similar political profile. Say. They were both young, liberal, Harvard Law School graduates, as Obama kept saying. And Kane essentially told him at one point, this doesn't make any sense. You know, why would you... We're essentially the same politician with the obvious difference being I'm not demonized because of my because of my ethnicity, my skin color, as you are, you know, Senator. But Obama told him, you know, the thing is, Tim, you are the choice of my heart, but Joe is the choice of my head. And sometimes I go with my head and sometimes I go with my heart. And we all know how this ended. But the idea now that they were friends from the start and that this was, you know, the last few years have been this fate accomplished was if you had told either of them at that point that we would be here today, they'd be very surprised. And you can comment on that if you want, but I have to throw back at you a question you posed in your book, and I am sending it right back at you. What do Barack Obama and Snapple Ice Tea have in common? Well, one of the, the contemporary legends that I studied in the 1990s was about Snapple Ice Tea. Um, only 
some of you in the room old enough to remember when it came out have a clue of, of even remembering this. But in the African-American community, uh, text circulated alleging that the owners of Snapple were white supremacists funneling the profits to the Ku Klux Klan. The proof was the slave ship. You see the slave ship? Yeah. On the label. And then the K on the label for KKK. Of course, the reality is that this is the tea from uh, this is the ship from the Boston Tea Party, and uh, the K means it's kosher. The uh, there were segments of the white community that circulated a belief that Snapple was owned by ardent pro-life uh, company that was funneling all of the profits into Operation Rescue in order to diminish the number of abortions. And I began to compare this product with other products to say, what are the characteristics of a product that make it prone to conspiracy theories and, and rumors and so forth? Barack Obama gives the speech in 2004 where he nominates John Kerry and goes into the stratosphere. And I said, you know, he's just like Snapple ice tea. The characteristics are um, both of them came out of nowhere. It's hard, I think, perhaps for the students in the room to understand that it was just colas before Snapple. There were no designer juices or teas or anything like that. And all of a sudden, Snapple was everywhere. You had to be a serious political junkie like Gabe or somebody. You have heard of Barack Obama before. Or that somebody right there. <laughs> before that nomination speech. And then all of a sudden, after that speech, he was everywhere. They both have strange names. Why would you name an apple juice Snapple? Why an iced tea? Barack Obama? He's the first Barack most people know, the most Obama, and that middleman, Hussein. <laughs> they both were costly compared to others. They were different than others on, he was, you know, Gabe was just saying, this is a different kind of a politician. This was a different beverage choice for lunch. And in those days, remember, you had to perpetuate these things like via hard copy documents and at barbecues and on buses. This is pre-email, you know, being common and, and so forth. But the truckers who delivered the colas to grocery stores were getting less work because the actual space needed for colas was diminishing because Snapple was so important. They were moving the colas out. And Barack Obama was perceived by some as moving the traditional Hillary Clinton, the traditional politicians out. They were outsiders. He was like so many black people. He was not staying in his place. And that's what Barack Obama and Snapple Ice Tea have in common. I rest my case. And a whole flotilla of absolutely unfounded rumors, exaggerations, charges, fictions, all of that. Now we're going to come back to the relationship between President Obama and now President Biden, but back when he was vice president. Can you talk, Gabe, about the fraught debate on Afghanistan policy, where in the end, Obama, in effect, overruled his vice president? From the perspective of today, who was right? The current president was right. Uh, and he would be the first to tell you, though, he would not. The, the, yeah, which current? President Biden, then Vice President Biden. Last summer, when Biden ordered the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. He saw that as the end of essentially an over-decade-long debate that he'd been having not only with Obama, but with military leadership with Washington overall. Um, at the time, it's important to remember, this is one of the first issues that Biden and Obama 
addressed when they got into office. And Biden saw it as a very important moment for him. The what is the future of the war in Afghanistan? He saw this as an important moment for him in not only establishing his role as vice president, but also for his relationship with Obama and his place in history. He had been the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, knew this issue backward and forward. And he, while he had voted for and supported these wars that were ongoing, Iraq, Afghanistan, he had really soured on. First things he did before he, before they were even inaugurated is he went there and tried to talk to military leadership to understand what was happening. He got back home, said to Obama, the issue is you ask 10 different people what we're trying to do in Afghanistan and you get 10 different answers. And he argued almost essentially from the start, it's just time to get rid of our presence there. Uh, he didn't go that far necessarily in all these conversations, but he was very clearly from the start against a continued presence and certainly against a ramped up presence in Afghanistan. The problem was for Joe Biden that he was not the president and that Obama was hearing other things from military leadership who wanted him to vastly increase the troop presence in Afghanistan and continue the war, but also others in his cabinet. And that included, by the way, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. But from day one, Obama sat Biden down and said, you know, and keep in mind that closer relationship at this point, developing it. Obama sat Biden down and said, I need you to play bad cop in these meetings. I need you to press the military leadership on every assumption they're making, every every conversation they're having, every case that point that they make to me. And Biden was happy to do that. But Obama said to him, listen, you might not agree with every decision that I make, but I need you to, at the end of the day, go along with it and not second guess me. And Biden, understanding what the role of a vice president was, essentially said, happy to do what I need to do here. But he was deeply uncomfortable when he lost debate after debate. And over the course of 2009 in particular, though this did go on for the entire Obama presidency, he would really annoy military leadership to the point where they would want to throttle him in these meetings by asking every single question possible that he could think of. He would essentially argue on end about why it was time for, you know, that war was essentially a failure and that they needed to just come up with a way to end this. To make a long story short, before Obama made one of the final troop escalations uh, late in 2009, Biden was um, at the beach for Thanksgiving, as he always was, and he heard that there were final decisions happening without him there. And he got really agitated and faxed Obama, essentially saying, you don't have to do this right now. And Obama got increasingly annoyed as he sort of thought, A, yes, I do. B, I'm the president. And then Biden decided to cut his vacation short, showed up in the, uh, let's finish this one way or the other. And at the end of the day, he lost those debates. And one of the first things that he said that he was going to do as president was to get American troops out of Afghanistan, no matter what it took. And right before he made that final decision, he called Obama, who was then sitting in Martha's Vineyard, happily retired. And he said, we're finally going to do this. And so we've seen the arc of this carry on for, for almost two decades now. Pat, you, you write about a whole host of issues and false lore about President Obama, about the Boy Scouts, about birtherism and Trump, about the charge that Obama was a Muslim, and even about removing the American flag from Air Force One, which, of course, never happened. All these charges would be both absurd and stunning if we weren't so familiar with the bitter opposition that President Obama encountered. Can you talk not just about the Trump effect here, but about the larger forces that fed these fires? Sure. The identity of Barack Obama as the first black, and I think it's a key element of that identity that um, one of his parents was African. You see an enormous amount of xenophobia in the attacks on Obama, which hit 
every aspect of his identity. So as, as, and, and, and you're probably familiar with, with, with many of these. It's, but if you think about what our identities are, it's our faith. So he's a Christian. He's accused of being a Muslim. It's our politics. He's a member of the Democratic Party, capitalist. He's accused of being a socialist. He is a heterosexual, uh, married father of two. There's a whole cycle called Bathhouse Barry in which he is alleged to be gay. Every aspect of his identity is targeted. The big one, of course, he's an American. He's accused of being born, depending on the version, either in Africa, in Kenya, or in Indonesia. So amongst the forces that propel them are the fact that very early on, and this always happens or almost always happens with this kind of lore, people figured out a way to profit on it. There were professional birthers. There were people who supported themselves through the websites they developed and the blogs that they created full-time, 40 hours a week by pushing out the birther beliefs. Um, similarly with QAnon. QAnon was in the way far darkest parts of the internet until three people decided that they could support themselves by pushing this forward. One of the questions that I wish I had been able to do a better job with in my book. I don't know how often authors admit that. I would love to know, have been able to say more precisely what role Russian bots had in the perpetuation of the memes and the narratives and getting them to the faces and the inboxes of people whom they had, who had been identified as primed to believe this because creating chaos and dysfunction between the black community and the white community in America has been part of the Russian MO since at least the 60s. But it's they don't want people like me to figure this out. So it's very hard. You describe Biden's role in the fight to pass health reform and, for that matter, other significant domestic legislation, given his long background in the Senate. And did President Obama see that role as critical or at least very important? Uh, at times, absolutely. One of the initial things that they dealt with as president and vice president was the tanking economy in 2008, 2009, end of 2008, early 2009. Uh, they set about to do a stimulus recovery package and Biden's long history on Capitol Hill was front and center. He essentially was sent to go and try and win over with Harry Reid, the Democratic leader, a small group of Republicans that they needed to pass this legislation. He did that very effectively. And Obama saw almost immediately that he could use Biden as his doer on Capitol Hill because he had these decades of relationships. When it came to Obamacare, however, which turned out to be the number one legacy topic of the administration, their accomplishment, Biden was very, very skeptical from the start and told Obama as much even before they became president and vice president. Once they had won during the transition period, you know, people will give us a pass, he said, if we don't go so hard on healthcare, because of course, they'll understand the economy is faltering. We should focus on the economy. That's what people want to see. Not only that, we won't be able to pass a lot in Capitol Hill. People have been trying to pass universal health care for a century. He had seen it over and over, including in the 90s when it was a very painful thing for Democrats to miss out on. Uh, and then he said, you know, we're not going to have the we're not going to have the political will and we will look bad. This is going to drag down the rest of our administration. We won't be able to pass anything else. And Obama essentially said to him, and by the way, Biden was not the only person making this case internally, but he was one of the loudest. Uh, Obama essentially said to him, every argument that you're making is a status quo argument. 
I understand where you're coming from, but this is not how we're going to do things here. And so for a long time, Biden, of course, got on board and said, great, I'd love to, pa- I'd love to pass this. I just don't think it's realistic to focus on this right now. So for a long time, he essentially sat in the background. He focused on other things. He focused on the winding down the war in Iraq, which Obama had tasked him with doing. He focused on implementing the stimulus package with Obama, which Obama had tasked him with doing. And on occasion, he was called in to help talk to a few senators, but he was really not one of the driving forces for Obamacare at all. So when it came time for this to finally, you know, after a year essentially of negotiations, very tortured negotiations in which the Tea Party arose and and some of the nonstop obstacles that Obama and Biden would face together were really brewing and coming into the focus at this point. You know, Biden was in the background. And then at the very end, when it comes clear that this is going to pass, he sort of reemerges as a public defender and public arguer for this for this piece of legislation. And what he when he said that to Obama, when he said the B, famous BFD line, it was an expression of legitimate surprise. And and he was really impressed with Obama at that point. And that was one of the important moments for their relationship because he hadn't necessarily underestimated Obama, but he had not fully understood the extent to which he was able to play the inside game as well as the outside game. He thought that this was an outsider who was going to change the culture, but he saw that Obama was able to do the winning over of senators as well, which was a very important thing for their relationship. There were other issues on which he was dispatched to deal with Senator X, Y, and Z. And you see it still today. That's one of the reasons that he believes he can still win over Republicans against all evidence, because he did occasionally have to try and do that during the Obama years. But of course, the dynamics have changed fairly dramatically. So I'm fascinated by this conversation because all of that is happening while they're also dealing, or President Obama is dealing, with the sludge that you write about. I mean, it's it's kind of two yeah, fronts. Yeah. And that sludge wasn't just about him. Can you talk about the trash talk about Michelle Obama? Yeah. In the materials on Michelle, we see you could do a table of contents for a book on stereotypes about Black women. And virtually every one of them gets attached to Michelle Obama. So they start out with the angry Black woman. The angry black woman believes that she, when Barack was running, her undergraduate thesis from Princeton became a topic of interest on the right because it was clear that she had written about race in some way. And initially, Princeton wouldn't release it, but it was getting too much visibility. So it gets released and it wasn't incendiary enough for the critics. So they cut and pasted from it and they took quotes where she's quoting someone else out of it and circulated them around in an email as though this was coming out of her mouth in order to make her sound like an Angela Davis style kind of a, a, a revolutionary. After they get into office, there become common beliefs. One of them was that she had dramatically increased the size of the first lady staff over what Laura Bush had had. For the record, they had the same size staff. There was these delusions of grandeur and all of the stereotypes about a welfare queen begin to attach to her, that she insisted on first-class treatment everywhere, that she'd been asked to submit suggestions for a postage stamp. And one of the images that she sent over was a profile image of herself with a crown on her head, a regal one. So the sort of welfare queen, over-entitled black woman, her body becomes problematic. For many Americans, she is 
a beautiful woman. She was on the, and still is on the cover of magazines and, and fashion designers love to see her in her, in their clothing. But for other Americans, they created memes of her that make her muscular, ape-like, the sort of um, image of a mammy that were very common with black women years before. So just all of these stereotypes. And then towards the end of the second administration, and what you see now, if there's a story about Michelle Obama now, what you see are the accusations that she's transgender. She was born Michael Robinson, got as far as to play football in college when she decided to have a sex change operation. See, this goes with Bathhouse Barry, right? This explains the relationship. This is why they're together. And the girls are adopted, by the way, um, in, in this way of thinking. So that, again, was a real dark Internet one until the comedian Joan Rivers was interviewed off the cuff after having performed a gay marriage ceremony. And the reporter asked her if she ever thought that we could have a gay president in the United States. And she said, well, we've got one now. And the reporter said, well, what are you talking about? And she said, Barack is gay and Michelle's a tranny. Everybody knows. And then, you know, it was a typical Joan Rivers line. And she goes into her apartment building after that. So that text then moves from the dark internet into, you know, then I'm able to pick it up on much more conventional sources. And what happens to Joan Rivers? You may think that she died of a botched surgery, (laughs) but the truth is that Michelle and Barack in these versions had her killed for outing her identity and their relationship. So if you do something like look at the comments, they just had the portrait unveiled in the White House, the official White House portraits of the Obamas a few weeks ago. If you go to a news story about that, that still has the comments on, because a lot of them turn the comments off, you'll see these references to her as Big Mike. You'll see comments about where you can see a penis in the clothing that she's wearing. All of this comes up in any story about Michelle Obama now that depicts her in a positive light. My father was a long-distance truck driver, and another truck crashed into him. We had just started this new phase of our relationship. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, host of All About Change, a podcast showcasing individuals who leverage the hardships they faced to better the lives of others. We hadn't figured it all out, but we were making steps. Listen to All About Change for a dose of hope and inspiration. I want to get to some big questions for me about uh, the relationship between Obama and Biden. And then I want to give you a chance, Pat, to talk in a kind of rounded way about not only how this happened, but what we do about it. So Gabe, I'm going to start with you. Was there ever any serious consideration given to replacing Biden with Hillary Clinton on the 2012 ticket? And then tell us about the TV debates in that campaign and the role that Joe Biden played. Sure. Well, first, let me say, I wish that Princeton would shield my undergraduate thesis, from (laughs) not for conspiracy's sake, but it's embarrassing. The short version is that no, There was never serious conversation within the White House about replacing Biden. And for that reason, well, 
I'll put a pin in this point, but uh, there was never any serious conversation about it. But this was absolutely something that was in headlines and speculation and even on TV leading up to the 2012 election, because Biden had not really distinguished himself in the way that we now think of him um, as an interesting, loyal, publicly known for anything in particular vice president during much of the first term. And there was a lot of ta- thought that Hillary Clinton deserved the position and that they, they should just swap and that Biden should be happy being secretary of state. The truth of the matter, as I reveal in the book, though, is that when Obama started his reelection campaign, hired some aides for that campaign, he did ask them to evaluate everything to sort of say, what should we be doing differently? And one of the questions that they asked in polls and in focus groups, and they always asked this indirectly because they didn't want it to leak, was well, what is the image of Biden? What is the image of Hillary Clinton? And in roundabout ways, they were trying to in- indeed evaluate. Would it make sense down the line to consider replacing Biden with Clinton? It was never taken seriously because... For one thing, the answer in the polls and in the focus groups was, of course not. That makes no sense whatsoever. Why would you even think about this? But it was a question that, because they were questioning absolutely everything, they they talked about. Biden was aghast at this. And when he found out that there was something even somewhat real happening, a real consideration of this, although, again, it never even rose to the level of Obama, so it was not that real. He essentially went to senior staffers in the White House and to Obama and said, how could you let this go on so long and why aren't you batting this down more forcefully? And he was told, it's not real, it's not going to happen, but there's a reason that this conversation has gone public, which he took as a brushback, as a sort of step up your game comment. This is pretty raw for him because, of course, he sees his relationship with Obama as friendly in addition to being a very productive political one. And by the way, this is why, though there have been some articles written over the past year or two, or the past year, I should say, and certainly the last few months, suggesting that Biden might want to replace his vice president, he would never even consider something like that because he remembers this experience. Their relationship at that point, though, was fraught. You'll remember or perhaps not, that that early in the 2012 election campaign, Biden got out in front and endorsed same-sex marriage before Obama did, which was a very painful moment for Obama because he was in pre- he was trying to get to that point in a politically careful way. Uh, but Obama, uh, Biden just said it, which was very annoying to Obama, though Biden was proud of himself for doing so. And though the campaign was run largely on economic lines in 2012, Middle class Joe, as Biden likes to call himself, was not really foregrounded for a long time as the administration tried to figure out how to talk about its economic record in a very difficult time for the economy. Those debates were interesting because Obama tanked his first debate. He did terribly against Mitt Romney. Everyone sort of knew that was going to happen because incumbent presidents always do poorly in the first debate because it's the first time that the challenger can stand on stage with them and look presidential. And I'm talking about when we have normal presidents and candidates anyway um and so the hot take that even that night you know the, the public perception was that obama had thrown away his re-election and there was real talk that this was it the reality is that the polling showed that it was just a tight race and the even tighter one afterwards but by what biden did is he saw this he had known that it was going to be tough and he'd been preparing to essentially steamroll paul ryan who was mitt romney's running mate and not let him get a word in edgewise and he knew that it was a bit of a controversial way to approach the debate, but they essentially determined that all the Democrats needed was a reason to vote for Biden and Obama, and that what Biden was going to do is be aggressive, smiley, and make Paul Ryan look unserious. And that's exactly what he did. Republicans hated the way that Biden presented himself. Independents didn't even love it that much, but Democrats got really excited about it. And from that point on, Obama called Biden that night and said, you got us back on track. From that point on, the campaign wasn't smooth sailing. But compared to what we've seen since then, it certainly was. It's funny because 
I got a call from one of the Biden advisors during debate prep saying he only has two speeds. If he does the kind of calm Biden, it's sort of boring and laid back. And the other speed is frenetic. And some people are going to be offended by it. I said, you go with the other speed. This is not a time when you can lay back. So last question to you before I turn this over to the, before I ask Pat and then turn it over to the audience. How strongly did Obama influence Biden's decision not to run in 2016? And how does his attitudes of Biden 2020 evolve over the course of that campaign? 2016 was very painful for Joe Biden. He wanted to run for president. He thought it was only natural that he should run for president. But a few things got in the way. And the first and most important one that truly weighed on him most heavily was the death of his son in 2015. He was in immense pain over that. And it took a long time to mourn and is still grieving his son. And Obama saw that and thought there's no way that he could go through the very painful process of running in a presidential election. But Obama was also making a political calculation. He had come to the conclusion that Hillary Clinton should replace him, which should be the historic first woman president, should be, is the obvious person to carry forth for Democrats. And he made that clear to Joe Biden behind the scenes. And this was the rawest year, really for the both of them, in which their relationship was strained as much as it ever has been. And in some ways, it's still recovering from this. Biden thought that Clinton was a flawed candidate and during the 2016 campaign, got surprisingly close, gave advice to Bernie Sanders a few times, essentially thought there's no way that I shouldn't be out there. This campaign is being run on you know, middle-class economics. He really missed the rise of Trump as did everyone else. Um, but he thought that Clinton was not the right messenger for Democrats at that time. And he made that very clear behind the scenes. At one point, one of the advisors that Obama asked to talk to Joe said, you know, they had heard that Biden was behind the scenes complaining about how no one trusted Hillary Clinton. They were complaining about media coverage. They were complaining about the way that she was talking to voters, et cetera. But he kept saying people just don't trust her. And, one, and Obama asked one of his top advisors to go and talk to Biden about this. And what the advisor said was, it's true that no one trusts her, but no one trusts Trump either. So this is not going to be the thing on which this election is decided. And Biden wasn't very happy with that argument, but you know, moved on. The day after election day, after Trump won, Biden saw that advisor, this was Obama's political director, looked him in the eyes and said, trust doesn't matter, huh? So it was a very uncomfortable time in the White House. Biden took it very personally. And in fact, in 2020, when Obama, realizing that he couldn't try and dissuade Biden again, but was very skeptical of Biden still, Obama started taking meetings with every other person who wanted to run for president. Biden essentially said, listen, you can try to dissuade me all you want, but I'm going to do this because I think I'm the right person to beat Donald Trump. And there was real reason for Obama to be concerned. He didn't think that Biden was still in touch with politics in the moment. You know, Biden was going to be the oldest president. He hadn't run a successful campaign ever and had run two really bad campaigns before in 1988 and 2008. And at one point, Obama sat him down and said, Joe, you really don't have to do this. And Biden said, yeah, I do. And of course, Biden was right. And it took Obama a very long time to come around to the idea that Biden should be that candidate in 2020. And he didn't help him behind the scenes until very late in the game. And that was even then that was only because he was very skeptical that Bernie Sanders could beat Trump. So Obama was watching very closely. And as a result, his relationship with Biden on presidential elections, presidential politics is very fraught. When they first met the summer of 2008 to talk about the vice presidency, Obama said to Biden, I need you to promise me that this is the capstone of your career. Biden took that to me and, well, you don't want me to run for president, I guess. And he joked back, oh, so you don't want it to be the tombstone of my career, which was his way of not committing to Obama that he wouldn't run for president in 2016. As a result, they still haven't talked about what's going to happen in 2024, and I'd be surprised if they do anytime soon. Pat, after you analyze 
all these anti-Obama conspiracy theories, you conclude that the Obama legends flourished even after he left office. I want to ask you about the role of President Trump here. Did he widen the space for these kinds of false and poisonous attacks? For example, by saying after Charlottesville that there were good people on both sides. And what's the antidote to all of this, if any? Well, the answer to Trump widening is obviously yes. A lot of people think Trump was the first birther. He wasn't. The birther text had existed for several years. Trump was thinking about what to do in 2012. He went to one of the editors of one of the virulent anti-Obama websites and said, what gets the most clicks? Which kind of stories get your readers the most agitated? And they said, the answer was anything about Obama's eligibility to be president. That's what gets the most clicks. And that's when Trump becomes a birther. And he gets away with it. He gets away with it and the perpetuation of these beliefs. So we have at the beginning of Obama's first term and during his candidacy, the patriotism beliefs are things like he won't wear a flag pin and he had the American flag taken off of his plane. By the end of his second administration, I'm able to collect things like he sent American troops to Sierra Leone so that they would contract Ebola, come back to the United States with Ebola, go into all of their communities. Ebola would spread, kill off Americans, and that reads white Americans, and then he can replace, this is one of the versions of replacement theory, the American population with Muslims, which is what he wanted to do all along. Flag pin to that. And it succeeds. There's not a voice, you know, there's, there's, there, Trump gets elected. I'm a folklorist in a room with political scientists, so I'd love to hear others on this, but it definitely seems as though identifying what voters hated Barack Obama, that was a key constituency for the Trump vote. There are others, but that's a key one, and he wasn't going to leave anybody off the table. So the fact that it worked, that Trump gets away with it and others get away with it is a factor. What is the antidote? Um, I like to think that exposing and writing about it as I do is one piece of the antidote. One of my fantasies recently, I'm a big believer in one of, I co-dedicate my book to the Snopes website. I'm a big believer in the fact-finding websites, but they operate on a shoestring. They ask for contributions from the people who go to them. So one of my fantasies is that Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, is giving away all the money. I would love her to give a huge chunk of money to have a fully polished independent fact-finding, a fact-checking site that would enable the highest quality journalists and the best academic minds and everybody to be on point with that still won't go away with it. (laughs) They still won't go away with that. But I think that there have to be more efforts. Gabe mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you know, we keep talking about normal candidates and, you know, Trump is the elephant in the room, if you will. It would be terrific if the major political parties would have an agreement that when the scurrilous information develops about the other candidate, they will dismiss it. 
an aggregated moment like it's Gail Quinnell is the name of the woman who spouted the anti-Obama at the Trump rally. To have the party be a part of the solution and to have the party say, no, we're going to let this election unfold on the merits of the arguments of the two candidates. And when this kind of thing arises, we'll be a part of shutting it down on behalf of the other candidate. But then all of a sudden you think about Donald Trump and it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was about to say. The gatekeepers are all gone. Pat Moynihan's whole line about everybody's entitled to their own opinions, not their own facts. Anybody can get their own facts. In fact, anybody can be their own network. Okay, I want to open this up to audience questions. Anybody have a question? Thank you. This was just wonderful. I am a political scientist um, here, Allison's colleague, um, and Bob's, uh, but I do international relations. And what I would like to do is maybe just um, have Gabe extrapolate a little more on a comment you made sort of in passing, which is Biden's potential doubts about Kamala Harris as the vice president. I was, I'm also a Latin Americanist. I was shocked that her very first portfolio was to clean up the mess in the Northern Triangle. Hello? I mean, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, El Salvador. And I don't think she has really any foreign policy experience, let alone going into that mess. Then the second task was to clean up those detention centers at the border that are left over from the Trump period. And that, both of those together, is like, a one-way ticket back to California, okay? Sure. That's a great question. Uh, and it has to do a lot, I think, with the uh, perils of the vice presidency. It's important to think about when you think about the relationship between Biden and Harris, or also the role that Harris has right now. It's important to think about what Biden's role was, because Biden considers himself to have been one of the best, most successful vice presidents. He was there in many ways as a governing partner for Obama because he had immense experience on foreign policy because he had immense experience on Capitol Hill with negotiating with senators, getting things passed like that. When he chose Harris, she was in many ways also supposed to be a governing partner, but he decided that she was going to be what the Democratic Party needed to be moving forward. It was in many ways explicitly a political pick, but there wasn't necessarily a built-in set of responsibilities that she was going to have to have as vice president because the vice presidency, of course, is an entirely amorphous role and in many ways an impossible job in which expectations are sky high. And we think of the Obama-Biden relationship as the sort of standard relationship that that vice presidency should be. But it was in many ways entirely extraordinary, which is why I wrote a book about it. But, you know, we look at other recent presidents and vice presidents, you know, Clinton and Gore didn't get along very well. Trump tried to kill Pence, you know, like, so Biden, the reason that Biden gave Harris this first job of dealing with the, uh, dealing with the roots of the uh, migrant surge at the border, which is the way that he thought about it, is because that was one of his roles under Obama and because he cared about it a lot. Not because it was an impossible task in his mind, but he thought that she would be able to marshal the government to work on it. It was very quickly construed by the media as Kamala Harris borders are, which was a failure of the media, certainly, but also of the White House to push back on that and to say this is not actually what her role is. She did, however, say, I don't want to go to the border and deal with this, deal with those optics and fall into that trap. The idea that Biden gave her an impossible role may be true. It wasn't purposeful. But unfortunately, because that was such an intractable problem, they didn't set specific parameters for what success would look like in that job. 
there was a real issue in determining from there, where do you go next? One of the next things that she asked for was a portfolio on voting rights. Incredibly important portfolio. But the way that they talked about that was trying to pass a specific bill that never had a chance of passing. So the things that she was tasked with from the start were essentially non-starters, politically speaking. And they haven't yet figured out a way to properly communicate what her role is as a governing partner, because she's been very effective as a political partner. It's one of the intractable problems of the vice presidency, especially when you have people who have not really overlapping political or governing skills, but who haven't really figured out a way to make those, you know, fit together in a jigsaw puzzle. Um, And as a result, you know, obviously I don't need to tell you, but the problems at the border and certainly the roots of those problems haven't gone away at all. Uh, Thank you for this conversation. I find it super interesting. And I wanted to respond uh, and ask a question around the Snopes comment. And it's really in both of your books, uh, you highlight misinformation that was said about uh, about President Obama. And it seems like most people know what the facts are. And for people who are searching for or making all these claims of that were factually incorrect, when they go to those fact-checking sites, they don't believe them either, right? So it's not that the facts will, they think, oh my gosh, I had it wrong the whole time, shame on me. Uh, they oftentimes will doubles down in their uh, incorrect views and trigger that backfire effect. Uh, so I'm personally very skeptical about fact-finding in general. And I I just worry more broadly about sort of the tribal orientation of our politics today and how people will just believe whatever their political identity tells them to believe. And I just wondered for you, as you look to you know this the midterm election, who's going to be president in 2024, uh, if you see those sort of tribal identities, this political polarization to the extreme as something that is taking our politics sort of off the rails right now. And if you were personally concerned about that, given your research on the President Obama. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that there's any hope that, you know, most of the people that we saw on camera on January 6th are going to the fact uh, checking sites before marshalling forward. Absolutely. The extremes aren't going to do that. Where you see success is more a person who might be on the right, but have an education and be willing to take the step. If somebody says to them, you know, I heard that that was really just made up. Let's go to this third party place and see what they've come through. I I read a lot of Facebook exchanges and sometimes something will come up and they'll go, you know, Snopes says, or there's others as well. And some people who are, you know, still have a, a level of reason in them. That's the population I think that you can go for. I also think if they become a part of the educational process, if students are trained to turn to them at the junior high, high school level for beliefs, and it becomes a component of what you do in interpreting and understanding the news. Oh, let's, let's see what a third party has to say about it. You might get some, some change that way. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is it doesn't need to necessarily be, in my view, the rise of a new series of fact checkers. The, the, another way of talking about what we're talking about is media literacy. It's one of the massive issues in our country. And this goes back to, you know, like you were saying, it could be an educational thing, teaching people how to read the news from the time they're, you know, in elementary school and middle school is a very important possible thing that we could do. 
obviously education has been very politicized, certainly in the last few decades, but very clearly right now. But this all has to do with lack of trust in the news media for obvious reasons or for predictable reasons, I suppose. Lack of trusted news sources at the local level builds up to what we are at now. So the crisis in local news is a big problem here. But news literacy is the central issue here. But like you said, we're sort of in a world right now where there's not an obvious hand. It's not as if I snap my fingers and mandated news literacy programs that that would really answer a lot of these problems. We just live in a fully polarized world and there is no good. Yeah, Am I concerned? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, we have, we have time for one more brief question if somebody has one. Thank you very much for this wonderful session it's, and your incisive analysis. I wanted to ask two questions about practical solutions. Um, the United States is a party to the race convention, and it seems that some of this really horrible material ought not to be protected by the law, that it's defamation, that it is obscene, profane. And I'm wondering if civil rights groups might be able to file complaints with the committee that enforces the race convention, if there would any be any grounds for that or grounds for having websites not continue if they disseminate this kind of information. And then the, the second practical question is, when political advisors hear that these kind of narratives are circulating, do they advise candidates to ignore them, that they'll go away? Or is there a role for political advisors also to play to be part of the solution? I had not thought about that with the race convention. So it's something for me to think about. So thanks for bringing that up. I will say that there is suspicion, though, once things are removed. So if you take the um, Joan Rivers example that I cited earlier, it used to be you could go to YouTube and you could find that reporter exchange that I described, and it was full of comments afterwards that this is why Joan was killed. YouTube takes it down from time to time. People put it back up. Now, if you go to YouTube and you put in Joan Rivers, Michelle Obama, the first clip that comes up is an interview with Joan Rivers about something else. Has not, it is not the exchange I described. It's just about something else. All of the comments say she was killed by the Obamas on this. And where did they put the other clip? So the removal, the perceived censorship of material actually can exacerbate in some instances. In terms of your second question, and, and Gabe should take that one too, but one of the things that I would hope, I would hope my book might have some value for political advisors embedded in it. They're in a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of a situation. During Obama's first run, he took the I'm not going to mention them because it will only plant them in the minds of those who haven't heard them even more, which is standard advice. Many of us, I've given that advice, have. But a couple of my colleagues in the social sciences have done some experimentation along these lines. And they have said that the lack of denial actually provokes concern with some listeners. They go, well... If he, you know, his delay with releasing his birth certificate, if there's really nothing there, how come he's not confronting it? So they might not be immediately inclined to subscribe, but the silence 
is daunting and problematic to them. It's why I almost, it's why I said before, you almost need the other side to be the ones to be a part of it. And there was no, there was a, a component of his website after they went for Michelle. They, he, when they were first going for him, the patriotism, he won't sing the national anthem and all of that. He just left that alone. But when they went after Michelle with the thesis, he created a fight the smear segment on his website that would go through all of these things, but there was nothing official from the white house. There's no place you can go on the white house website and say, I heard that the first lady is transgender. What's the official position on that? Um, And maybe that should be a fixture for presidents as well. Yeah. The only thing I'd add to both of these points is that there's an immense fear of having the image of politicizing these issues that are obviously political. But for the first one, for example, current administration is very, very wary of allowing the Justice Department to be seen as a political arm of the White House, right? Last administration didn't have that problem. This one wants to be fairly, wants to have some independence, wants laws to be carried out in a nonpartisan or at least impartial way. And there is this immense fear of claims of free speech on the other side. That's the obvious response. The question ultimately is, how do you, who's going to be the arbiter? Who's going to draw the line between what's true and what's false? At the end of the day, it's sort of a very unsatisfactory answer, but everyone's answer so far is we're not going to touch that. Um, on the second point, yeah, the standard advice is if there's a rumor about you, you don't touch that. I'll tell a very quick story. I was, I mentioned earlier the vice presidential process when Obama was trying to choose who to, who to select as his vice president. This was a different political environment entirely, but he asked everyone who was being considered to submit reams of vetting documentation about themselves. I mean, today, these are crazy documents that they ask for. They ask for your every member of your family's social media password so they can like scrub everything, right? I mean, totally. But at the time, Obama's people asked fairly standard questions. And one of the questions that they asked was, are there any rumors out there, true or false, that we should know about? And Evan Bayh, who had been vetted to be Al Gore's vice president eight years earlier, called the lawyer in charge of the vetting process and said, are you asking me if there are any scurrilous rumors out there about me? And they said, yeah, we want to know about those. And he said, well, I don't keep track of those. That's sort of a totally different political reality because you got to keep track of them. But the answer for a lot of people is if this is being surfaced, it's being surfaced by people who aren't going to vote for you anyway. So just let them live in their rotten corner of the world. It's a really unsatisfactory answer, but that is the one that people live with right now. I have to comment that obviously I couldn't be vice president, not least because I can't remember my social media passwords. (laughs) I want to thank you, Allison, and I want to thank Gabe and Pat for a terrific conversation. And I want to thank everyone here. This was, for me, a very revealing, very, very interesting insight into where America is and where America is likely to go in the coming years. Thank you all very much and see you soon. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture. That's USCPOLFuture. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.